For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we're, we've been working through this section, and like I was saying two weeks ago, chapters 10 through 13 represent sort of a, a specific section of 2 Corinthians, and Paul is specifically addressing the challenges that the, uh, the false teachers that have moved into Corinth, they're trying to attack Paul and they're trying to attack his message. And so he starts this section with what we've been talking about, the idea of spiritual warfare, which is the point that ideas actually have uh, a lot of power because an idea can affect your soul, who you are. Weapons of conventional warfare, guns and knives and, and, and missiles and bullets, they can affect your body, but they can't really affect your soul. Words can affect your soul. And this is a battle of idea, a battle of words. And he started out by telling them, you know, reminding them of the importance of ideas, of thoughts, and how we engage in that battle, and the importance of standing against lies, these fortresses that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God, that the enemies of God build to keep people from knowing who God is and keep people from really fulfilling and becoming who it is that God created us to be. And so in this section, Paul is directly taking on the accusations that are brought against him personally, which is kind of an interesting scenario. If we look back at 2 Corinthians 10, 10 through 11, he says, for they say, meaning these false teachers that have come in, that Paul's letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this, he says, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through 4, but I am afraid that as the serpent is deceived by Eve, uh, has deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of the devotion of Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. What he's saying is, is, this is not about me, guys. This is about the message, and it's not about my message. It's about Jesus' message. And when people come along and they tell you something, that Jesus is something other than who Jesus was, or that Jesus' teachings are something other than what Jesus' teachings actually were, when you, they come in and they pervert the teachings of Christ, you guys just lap it up. You receive it beautifully. You're ready to receive anything, even when it contradicts the teachings of God himself. And this is the enemy's plan. This is the attack that he, he was talking about when we were talking about spiritual warfare. They want to destroy the message. And the age-old way to do that is to attack the messenger, right? This is, this is a well-established practice because it tends to be so effective. Their accusations against Paul are things like, Paul is not a real apostle. You know, that's low-hanging fruit to attack him. He's not one of the 12. Jesus didn't pick him and, and, tra and travel with him for years. In fact, Paul was a persecutor of the church. 
somebody who was killing Christians because of his pharisaical beliefs. And he claims, yes, Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and changed his life. But do you believe that? Did anybody ever see Paul and Jesus together? Paul's a coward. He's so bold when he writes his letters, like 1 Corinthians, but when he shows up, he's going to be all you know, weak and, and soft, and he wouldn't dare say these things to your face. Paul's trying to take advantage of you. Paul's efforts here are to get rich. He wants to use his false apostleship to deceive you and to get you to give him money so that he can buy a big house somewhere and be comfortable. Paul's message isn't even the truth. He comes in with this easy believism that all you need to do is accept that you need God's forgiveness and understand how that forgiveness is provided for you in the person of Jesus Christ. They're like, that is way too simplistic of a message. That is not what Jesus taught. What Jesus taught is that you need to be religious and you have to observe the dietary laws and you have to observe and and work hard to be righteous and accepted by God. They have an argument where they are attacking Paul because they want to tear down Paul's teaching. But Paul was authorized by Christ as an apostle, and did teach consistently with what Jesus taught. But it puts Paul in this really interesting situation where he's forced to defend himself in order to defend the message. And if you've ever been attacked because of your faith, or especially if you're in a position of leadership, like a home church leader or something like that, and people attack you personally, it puts you in a really tough situation, doesn't it? Because we're not really supposed to attack people, right? As followers of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to love our enemies. And so when people come and they they raise accusations against you, what do you do? Do you defend yourself or do you depend on God? Do you counterattack? Or do you just let your actions demonstrate the truth of who you are? And how do you know in those situations? That's exactly where Paul is. 2 Corinthians 11, 6 through 9, he says, But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? But I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was indeed in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. What's his point? His point is, look, I never took money from you. Why are you accusing me of trying to get rich off you when I refused at every level to ever take any money from you? Yes, there were other churches that provided for my need because they believed in our work. They believed in our mission and they gave their money so that I could come serve you. And if there's any question, Paul says, that you are, are looking at my motives and think I'm doing this to, do, to be rich, well... I'll just continue to have my ministry supported by the churches who believe in what I'm doing, and they will pay for me to come to you. Let's just take that accusation off the table. Oh, and even if I am a poor speaker, 
Maybe I'm not the best public orator in the world, but you guys know that I am knowledgeable. I understand. I've been raised in the Scriptures. Paul was a disciple of Gamaliel, the leading rabbi of his generation. He was a sharp, educated man who had been one of the top Pharisees in his culture. And he says, Let, let's, you can attack my speech if you want, but we know that I know the Bible. Then he goes on the offensive and he begins talking about these false teachers. 2 Corinthians 11, 13-16. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. 2 Corinthians 11, 22-23. Are these guys Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, but I more so. And far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. And then he goes on to list all these crazy things that have happened in his life, these tragedies and these painful experiences because he is a dedicated servant of Jesus Christ and the teachings of Jesus. And so you see the situation where he's in. He's saying, these guys that have come in, they're saying, look, we're the original. We're the true descendants of Abraham, and we understand the law better than anyone else, and this message that Paul is teaching you is wrong. And Paul's saying, I have come from the same exact place that those guys come from. I used to be one of them. And they claim that they're following Christ, but what they're really teaching you is Phariseeism. And this statement here, I speak as if it's insane. It's so clear what's in his mind, the conflict here. He's like, look, you think these guys are great? Look at their ministry. Look at their fruit. My ministry and my fruit is so far beyond theirs. And he's like, I can't believe I have to say this. It's crazy that I have to, to boast to you about my spiritual credentials. But it's so important that you know I am the real deal. I am truly called by God, and what I am giving you is not my teaching, my tradition. It's the teaching of Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 12, verse 14, Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He says, look, the ultimate test of my sincerity in the faith. Ask yourselves, what do I have to gain by having this conflict with you? What do I have to gain by coming to you? I'm not taking your money. I'm not asking anything of you. I am engaging with you on the truth because God has called me to do so. So he's responding to this attack, and it is this very difficult thing. 
You know, he's sort of reflecting on these accusations that are brought against him, thinking, okay, do I prove myself and risk being seen as arrogant and boasting and taking credit for my own work? Because as Christian leaders, I know that I can accomplish nothing within myself. That it's God, anything that I do that matters, that has an impact on eternity, is the Spirit of God working through me. So when I'm attacked and my credentials are attacked and my message is attacked, if I go and make a case for how effective I am and for how much God works through me, then I just open myself up to a whole new attack. Look at how arrogant he is. He doesn't even believe that it's God working through him. He thinks that it's him. Do I boast of what God has accomplished in me? This is why he's like, I feel like I'm insane by even having this conversation with you guys. But I feel that you need to know. Do I go on the counteroffensive? Do I go and attack these false prophets? Do I examine myself and do I try to find things, faults, that I can apologize for? We all, even Paul, make mistakes. Don't do everything perfectly and don't do everything with the perfect motive. And so when you're under attack like that, there's a temptation to say, well, let me look back through and, and maybe I could find small things that I can own and maybe that would help them understand that I know that I'm not perfect. But then you're up against the question of will those things only result in more accusations, openings for the enemy to attack my character and my message? Do I respond? Do I do nothing? How do I think about this kind of attack? And Paul is clearly aware of all of those examples. You can see it in the tension that it, of what he writes. I feel I must tell you guys these truths, and I must attack these people. I must expose them for who they are. And I must do it, Paul says, because of the stakes of what's truly involved here. And what Paul's concerned about ultimately is not his authority over Corinth. That's not his major concern. It's not even his relationship with the people. He's willing to engage here and take these risks because what's at stake is their understanding of what salvation is. The enemies have linked the character of Paul with the authenticity of his message. And we know we have things like the New Testament where we have the written teachings of Christ. And we know that what Paul is talking about is very consistent with the teachings of Jesus Christ. But his audience may not have known that. They may not have been literate. A lot of this may have been written before all the Gospels were completed. How do they know? And so the battle here is not for Paul and his character and his message. The battle here is what are the true, authentic teachings of Jesus Christ? And how do the Corinthians understand that? And so Paul says, I'm coming to visit you again. And he has a challenge for them as he comes that he wants them to really consider what is it that you the Corinthian church, what do you really believe in terms of how someone comes to faith? And we get to 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 13, verse 5, where he says to this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you 
unless, of course, you fail the test. I want you to evaluate what it is that you truly believe and do some self-examination about why you're taking this stand or another stand. You've got two arguments. You've got these law livers coming in and telling you that religion is the way. I've explained to you that Jesus Christ has said faith is the way. What do you really believe? In the same way that Paul, through these accusations, has been forced to examine himself, his role, his motives, he now asks them to examine their faith. What is it you really believe? And so this, is, this whole section is really woven in and out with this question of what is introspection? And is it good? Is it bad? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ and ask yourself these questions about what's going on in here? What is introspection? It's a, it's a look inward about motives, actions, reasons, and beliefs. Why am I the way that I am and is that good? What are the problems that God is trying to root out? What are the weaknesses that are open to attack? What are the strengths that I need to build on? This sort of inward look at me in an attempt to be objective about what I'm dealing with. And we should ask the question here is, how does that fit with the larger picture of an other-centered life? The whole thrust of biblical living, of, of Jesus' teaching, is to love others, to love God and love others. It's not to love yourself. And so as I look inward, am I somehow disobeying this focus to look outward? And what's the tension between those two things? Miles Stanford in his uh, classic book that really all believers would do well to read this book, but this is especially a good book to read as, you're, as you've, you're new in the faith or if you're mentoring somebody, to read this with somebody who's, who you're mentoring. He writes, one of the most important factors in Christian growth is the Holy Spirit's revelation of the self-life to the believer. God showing you what's going on inside of you. Introspection, he says, is not involved here. The Holy Spirit uses experiential revelation. First, the believer learns, not I, then, but Christ. And if you've been trying to walk with God and learn and grow, there's probably a certain level of resonating that you have with what he's talking about here, right? What we do is we pray and we ask and we hope that God will reveal to us what's in here when it's useful, when he wants to show us what's in here. And the way he typically does that is, is we have experiences of failure. We go out and we try, and then our weaknesses are exposed through those experiences. We learn that we are not as great as we thought that we are, we are or as that we hoped that we were, and that dependence on Christ is what's needed in order to gain victory. That's very different from what our culture, you know, you go to the self-help section, this huge section of any store, and it's all talking about how you need to look inward and change yourself. And that is not really what the Bible is talking about. 
Do I need to spend a lot of time and energy examining my inner self, questioning my motives, questioning my heart? Or do I rely on God to reveal what I need as I go? Well, we should look deeply into the Scriptures on that. What kind of guidance does God give us on this? One interesting verse, this is the verse where people who really argue that introspection, that we really need to stop and spend a lot of time looking inside, and we need to root out all of our idols, and we need to find out what's, what's wrong with us. They like to quote this verb, their verse, Proverbs 20, 27. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of his being. That's interesting, isn't it? They're saying that your spirit guides God. That you need to go and, and, and search yourself out. And that God will be guided by that. That, that doesn't really fit the picture that we see many other places in Scripture. And what's interesting is this is the NASB translation, which I normally prefer. But if you look up this same verse in about 10 other translations, they don't translate it this way. They translate it like this. Proverbs 20, 27 in the NIV, the lamp of the Lord searches the spirit of a man and it searches out his innermost being. A completely different statement. Is it the spirit of man that guides the Lord or is it the spirit of the Lord that guides man in his innermost being? I think all the other translations actually have this one right. And this is actually perfectly consistent with what we see in the rest of Scripture. Look at what Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, 3 through 4. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. He's already in tension with these guys, and he's like, look, you can accuse me, you can do whatever, but I'm going to press forward. I don't spend a lot of time doing this inward reflection, trying to figure out how I could have done things more perfectly. Now, my conscience is clear, which means I'm not aware of anything that I've done, but that doesn't mean that there aren't problems. That's where I trust the Lord. The Lord knows what's truly on my heart, better than I do. And if he brings that up, my job is to be responsive to that. But I'm going to press on. What's in view here are his motives, right? That's what's being questioned. And he's saying, have I done everything perfectly? Surely not. I'm a human being. Have I sinned against you? I'm sure I could have done things better. Did I do everything for the right reasons in the right way? No, but I'm not aware of anything. And I trust that the Lord will make me aware as I move forward. See, there are real problems with this kind of introspection. A big one is what we call paralysis by analysis. There are some of us who get so wrapped up in that question of turning inward and finding, you know, and rooting out the deeper parts of, our, of the mysteries of our own heart that we feel like we can't move forward and do good. We can't put the truth into action until we are sure that we have every facet of our inner motivations worked out. And so while people are suffering and dying and, and, and 
passing away with no relationship with the Lord, we're sitting there kind of stuck, unable to get out into the mess because we're so focused inward on ourselves and our own questions about ourselves that we can't engage. And that's a true danger in this kind of thinking. Yes, some inward analysis can be good, but it can become paralyzing, which is terrible. There's a trap here that is so easy for us to fall into because basically a lot of us, myself certainly included, love thinking about ourselves. We love that. Even the bad stuff, it's still me, right? And that, you know, can become a fascination. Oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to really go, you know, this whole idea of like, I'm going to go climb a mountain and, and I'm going to fast and I'm going to, I'm going to blank my mind and just do introspection for a week. I mean, there's something that seems really spiritual, really holy about that. But God doesn't call people to do that. He calls them to get out into the world and love. I'm reminded of the story of Brother Lawrence a 14th century decoused Carmelite monk. You know, what's a decoused Carmelite monk? The Carmelites were like these radical, they really believed in taking vows of poverty. They would get rid of all their stuff and they would go out into the desert and just meditate for their whole lives, just them and God, right? The decoused Carmelite monks, decoused means, means without shoes. And so there was a division within this particular order of monks whether a vow of poverty included owning shoes or not. And so he was the most extreme of the extreme. He had been, uh, as a young man, he had gone into war. He was wounded and made one of these deals with God. You get me out of this and I will serve my whole life for you. He got out and he said, you know, God, I'm gonna make good on that vow. What's the most radical, all out for God thing that you can do? Decoused Carmelite monk take nothing but a robe and wander off into a cave in the desert to pray for the rest of your life. And he did that. And he had a vision, he says, where God came to him and he was like, what are you doing? (laughs) The people are in the cities. And he continued to to be a monk, but he went and became a shoe cobbler who didn't wear shoes. And he wrote a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And It's a devotional classic about being connected with God through prayer while you're in the middle of a busy, disconnected world. And it's a very interesting story that illustrates exactly what we see the God of the Bible being like. Don't corner yourself off for a lifetime of inward reflection. Get into the fight. Don't be caught in an endless loop of self-focus. Yes, there will always be things that we can do better. And there will always be need for change, for humility on our part, and for a receptiveness that God God and others can speak into our lives, words of correction. But if all you do is focus on yourself, how can God use you in the life of others? An introspection like this represents that kind of trap. Another problem with it is it's inherently subjective, if you think about it. How am I going to evaluate myself by myself? 
There's a bias built into that that is unavoidable. If you are broken, how can you get an accurate picture on how you can be fixed? And that's how you can wind up in one of these endless loops. Psalm 19.12 says, How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. That's a great prayer. What's it doing? It's saying I'm aware that there's stuff that I'm not even aware of. I'm sure of it, God. You know, though, Lord, and I give those things to You. We go outside of ourselves to the Lord and trust that He will lead us in that process. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We are so good at lying to ourselves, how can we truly evaluate ourselves? If I can't trust myself in this inner introspection, how can I examine myself? Should I just ignore whatever's in my heart? Right? That would be the other extreme that some people would hear. So don't think about your motives. Don't think about what you do. Don't worry. You've got a conviction in your heart. Just stuff it down and go. Right? Do the work and don't worry about why you do it. That's not what we're saying either. One thing you can do if you really want to try to get a picture of what your true heart is, is look at your actions. In many ways, your actions will always be more honest than your heart. Because what you do is actually a reflection of what your priorities are and what you truly believe. What do you do with your life? The best objective picture that you can get of yourself is to take an, an, an analysis of what it is that you do. James talked about this in chapter 2.18. He says, but some will say, you have faith and I have works. He says, show me your faith without works. Show me your faith where you do nothing and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now it's clear he doesn't mean that I get saved and I'm accepted by God by what I do. He knows way better than that. That's the exact thing that Paul is attacking in Corinth. But what he's saying is, is if you want to see what my, the, what my faith truly is, look at how I live my life. And you'll see the true answer to what it is that I believe by the choices I make and the principles I live by. Warts and all. Let the Lord lead this examination. Don't do it without Him. And don't do it without others for that matter. We're supposed to work and live and grow within community. And you say, well, I'm sorry, but the inner machinations of my heart are private. Well, why? <laughs> why are they private? Because I don't want anyone else to know what's really going on in there. Well, we all feel that way. We're all grossed out by what's in here, right? But under grace where we understand that we are truly loved, truly forgiven, and that the truth is what matters, we come to a point where we can trust one another with our weaknesses and help one another with that objectivity. I love this verse in 1 John 3.18. He says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. 
We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Get out there and do good. Love others. Let the truth that you believe manifest itself in your actions. And as you do that, you will see the truth of what God has said and you will see the faults in your heart that you didn't even know about. And trust that God will reveal those things to you and guide that process. You do not need to be the foreman of the renovation that needs to happen in your heart. You can't do that. But God promises that he will. And our job is just to listen and be receptive to the truth that he brings to us. Rather than fixate on yourself and your shortcomings and using those things as excuses to not do anything, give it over to God. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, this is right after Hebrews 11, the Faith Hall of Fame, where he goes through all these great people that have been used so powerfully by God for so many generations, all of them sinners, all of them with disgusting things in their hearts, but all of them willing to persevere and continue to walk with God. And he says, now that we've looked at all of that, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't fixate on yourself and all your shortcomings. Let go. Let go of those things and fix your eyes on Jesus Christ and trust that as you do that, your shortcomings will be revealed in God's timing, in his way, under grace. Philippians 3, 13 through 15, brother, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Paul says, listen, you need to know that I am certainly not perfect, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. How could Paul, a murderer of Christians, become a great ambassador for love and peace? For the love and peace of Christ. How could he ever do that? Could you do that? Could you murder a bunch of people and then show up at their Bible study and like, hey, want to put me in charge? How could you do that? You would have to do this. You would have to say, I have so much ugliness in my past, but I am not going to let that disqualify me from what God can do with my future. And so the past is going to have to lie in the past, and I am going to have to move forward and trust. I press on to the goal, the prize, the call, and, the, and Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. If in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. Trust that God will bring these things to light. Now, many of us have things that we know. God is screaming 
and bringing things to light. He's not saying ignore those things, right? If you have things that God has revealed, then, then good. Take those things seriously. But if you're like, well, you know, I can't move forward because I have to spend all this time rooting out all the ugliness within, God's like, don't stir the fish tank. Don't miss, you know, that, that's a mess down there. And let me deal with that. I'll go through the process of revealing what needs to change and what's new, and you'll discover those things as you step out in faith. So we go back then to 2 Corinthians 13.5, where Paul exhorts them to test themselves to see, are you in the faith? Examine yourselves. Is he calling them for this sort of introspection about what their motives are, about what their hearts are? Is he calling them to do that? No. He's calling on them not to ask the question, do you feel like you're with God? How do you feel about your faith? He's not saying that. He's saying, what do you believe? Ask yourself this question. There are two Gospels that you're being presented with. One is you earn God's love by works. The other is you receive God's love by faith. Which do you think is really true? Ask yourself the question, have you in faith opened the door of your heart and answered God's knock? Or not? Or do you arrogantly think that believing this kind of thing is too simple and we've got to bring in all of this religion or God will never accept us? He's saying, consider earnestly what you really believe on this point. Because when I come... I'm going to be looking for those who believe. You see, when we bring God into the equation, it changes everything. We can trust that He will be faithful, that He will show us, He will guide that process. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is never going to give up helping you see the areas where you need to grow. He can be trusted to do that. Our part is simply to respond. When God brings it up, what then? Psalm 139, 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. God, you be God and lead me and show me and I will respond. That's why David was a man after God's own heart. And we have to do this trusting and knowing that we are forgiven as these things are revealed. It's a crass example, but it, it sticks with you, you know. This idea that, you know, if you've been walking with God for 10 years, 20 years, you know, and you start thinking, I think I've come pretty far. I mean, there's little things that need to be tweaked, but, you know, that's when God will show you the next thing. And it's like oh, that revelation is like you've been walking around 20 years with your zipper down and no one told you. <laughs> You're just like, oh my God, this was here the whole time? And you go to your friends, why didn't you tell me about this? They're like, we told you a lot of times about that. <laughs> you wouldn't listen. No, that can't be. Yeah, remember the time we said this and that? And remember, you know, you're like, that's what you were talking about? And you're like, oh, the Lord has finally showed you this thing that you weren't ready for then, but you are ready for now, and we can rejoice together with you 
that God has deemed a time such as this as appropriate. You have reached a level of maturity now where you can grow in this area. That's the right attitude. Sometimes we do that and we say, oh my God, I can't believe how far I've fallen and that this, is, this thing that's been brought up has been there the whole time. I'm so ashamed. I just have to shut down and step back and say, I'm disqualified. That's not God's way. God doesn't reveal those things to you so that you can get on the bench. He reveals those things so that we can move to new levels of faith. Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This process of, of stirring up the inner man and revealing its true self to us is an act of grace. Not to shame us, but to free us to greater steps of love and faithfulness. Our part is to keep walking in faith, especially when we're confronted with failure. As our shortcomings become clear, we press on in trusting Him that He is God and He will guide our process. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Stay in the fight. Let and trust God in this process. So what do we say then? Is introspection bad? Such a black and white question. We would have to answer no to that. It's not always bad, and it's not in every way bad, but it can be. It's dangerous. It should be approached with great caution and care. Here's a good question if we're trying to figure out should I be more introspective or less introspection? What's your inclination? What's your leaning? What are your proclivities? Do you never stop to look at the motives of what's in your heart? Uh, it might be a good idea, right? If you're just like, I don't care and I'm not a, I'm not a real inner focused person and I don't really know what my feelings mean, I'm just going to do. Maybe it's time to slow down a little bit and, and, and take a look at what's in there, right? That could be helpful. Let God lead that process. But there are some of us who are so oriented toward doing that we don't ever really consider what's going on inside. I think those are in the minority, but they exist. I've met them, right? But for a lot of us, it's a question of, are you so paralyzed with indecision and fear about what's inside that it's preventing you from serving others? then it's time to dial back the introspection and, and get off the bench and back into the action. Warts and all. And you're like, but you don't know. I got real problems. We all do. And being honest about those problems, being open about those problems, and then serving anyway is God's way. Let God lead the process. Here's another question that would be good to ask. Does introspection bring you closer to God and make you more able to love others? Does slowing down to take that time, does that result in kindness, peace, patience, love, self-sacrifice? Or does it drive you further away from God? Does it fill you with shame 
and defeat and discouragement and drive you away from God and others. I can't go out into the world today. I'm so ashamed of the problems that I have. It's time to dial that back if that's the case. Look at the fruit of what those actions do in your heart and how they help you or hinder you in your obedience to God's call to love Him and love others. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.